0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome to UFOs Above Canada, a
0: nighttime podcast series exploring the people, the events, and the concepts that surround the Canadian UFO experience. If you have a personal story to share, or would like to discuss this topic, join the discussion on the UFOs Above Canada Facebook group. Welcome back to UFOs Above Canada, an ongoing nighttime series exploring a phenomenon that's ridiculed, almost as often as it's misunderstood. So far in this series, we've dedicated time to better understanding those strange lights in the sky. We did that with a trilogy of episodes asking the questions, what are UFOs? What aren't UFOs? And why should we care about them? Next, the narrative of the series and my then five-year-old son's life Was turned completely upside down when one of the very objects we had been considering made a cameo appearance during a Bonaparte family trip to Dairy Queen. This event led to an episode outlining the process of reporting a UFO event. And from there, in the last episode of the series, we took a closer look at the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, which is the international UFO group who investigated my son's encounter. And now, here we are, A collection of misfits from across the world, looking up at the sky and whispering into the darkness, what's going on up there? Well, I'll continue my attempts to figure it out, but I'm not going to make any promises. People much smarter than me have lost their minds after taking on this same task. Some of them in their parents' basement, some in homemade spaceships in their backyards, and yes, some of them have even held senior positions in the Canadian government. And that brings me to the topic of tonight's episode. After releasing my prior episodes outlining my son's UFO event and the MUFON organization, I heard from several listeners of the show who asked if and to what extent the Canadian government is involved in the reporting and investigation of UFO events. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'll speak to someone well-positioned to tell us all about our government's past involvement with the UFO phenomenon. He's a PhD candidate at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario, who chose an interesting topic for his doctoral dissertation. Matthew Hayes' work is on the history of Canada's investigation into UFO sightings. I first learned of Matthew Hayes' work as a result of a past CBC radio appearance he made alongside friend of the show, Chris Rutkowski. In the program, which made a case for Cold War anxieties providing the fuel to many historic UFO reports, Matthew Hayes outlined his years of work obtaining and analyzing near-endless Canadian government documents related to the UFO phenomenon. Immediately, I knew he would be someone listeners of Nighttime should hear from. But more than that, I wanted to know what he found while poring over those, probably heavily redacted, documents. But to make a long story short, I reached out to him, and he was up for telling us all about Canada's involvement in the UFO mystery.
2: My name is Matthew Hayes, and I am currently a PhD candidate in the Canadian Studies program at Trent University, which is in Peterborough, Ontario. And for the last several years, I've been researching and writing a history of Canada's UFO investigation. And the time frame of this, at least for my work, is 1950 to 1995. So it's at the same time a history of Canada in the Cold War, a history of government science, and a history of paranormal kind of occult uh, subjects. And I specifically narrowed in on the, the subject of what can what the Canadian the federal government thought about UFOs during this time, what they were and if they posed a problem, a scientific or a military, and what they eventually ended up doing about it.
0: Very cool. Now I don't imagine there are a lot of PhD candidates that are jumping into the topic of, you know, the the history of the government's interest in UFOs. How did you how did this idea come about? Like how how did you begin this research and, and decide that this is what you wanted to focus on?
2: Yeah, it is a a bit unusual, I think. Um, I was kind of in between. I finished my master's degree uh, in a totally different field, actually. Uh, And I wasn't even sure I was going to go back to grad school. I wasn't actually that keen on it. And I've just always just I think like a lot of people just being idly interested in UFOs and Sasquatch and the paranormal and just things that we just Things that The sense that things might be there, but we're not totally sure what they are, if they're real at all. And So uh, I think just late one night, I was just on Google looking up just random stuff. And I came across this uh, online, this virtual exhibition that the National Archives in Canada had put together years ago. And it was kind of in this archived state. And it was all about these UFO documents that the, that the federal government had collected over these years. And I was just shocked. I mean, I knew that the American government had run investigations into this, um, and and other countries as well. The the British uh, government had just released a bunch of documents, but I had no idea that Canada had done this as well. And I was just hooked immediately. I was fascinated. And and there's only a very small selection of the documents available to view on this website, which is still available. You can still access it. Uh, But I just went through them all, and I was just riveted. And... As soon as I realized that there was more, there, were, there, were, there was more to this archive, um, the, kind of the seeds started to, to germinate a bit, thinking that maybe this could be an actual project, you know, I could get my teeth into. Uh, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. I, I, ha- I was living in Peterborough, and Trent just happened to have this Canadian Studies program, which is this funny kind of interdisciplinary space where you can draw on kind of whatever disciplines you... You want to and and whatever is appropriate. And so I thought maybe this, maybe I have a chance of of being accepted. Maybe people would go for it, uh, given that it's kind of an unorthodox topic. And I actually haven't met any real resistance to the idea at all. I I was accepted to the program and just kept working, and it's been positively received kind of all along. I think people are just as fascinated as I am about it.
0: Amazing. Yeah, I, I'm picturing you like up in the middle of the night reading about UFO reports being like, I, I, sh- I should be working on, you know, my doctoral thesis. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it's great because it's one and the same now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, <laughs> I mean, that was, the, that's how, that's how great it worked out, I guess, is yeah, I, I, you know, I spent over a year kind of going through all these documents and the whole time I'm thinking like, somebody's going to call me at some point and tell me this this is not real. You can't be doing this anymore. But that call hasn't come yet, and almost finished.
0: So. You found the secret, I guess, to mixing business and pleasure for the most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Now with these uh, the the archive you mentioned of the of the Canadian UFO reports, and I'm familiar with the site you're talking about. And when I first found that, I had probably a similar reaction where I thought when you think of the government and UFOs, you kind of think of all this like secrecy and stuff. But for the most part, it seems like they're really putting a lot of it out there for for whoever feels the urge to review it to take a look at it like what kind of documents did you find in there like how how many documents are we talking about and you know what, what kind of stuff is it that you saw in here
2: mm-hmm. yeah and kind of the, the history of that i think there's a longer history to that secrecy and and the fact that the canadian government is being quite open about it i think that's a relatively recent thing and if you look back into the history kind of going back a few decades, it wasn't always like that. So it's kind of an interesting story in itself. But th- the gist of the archive is at least what I went through was about 15,000 pages of documentation. And it's not, one of the first things I realized, I guess, is that it's not really an archive. You, don't, you can't go to the National Archives in Ottawa and just say, I want to look at you know, the, the archive of UFO documents. All of these documents are spread across multiple different collections in the archive. And so it it takes a bit of detective work to track them down. Um, So about 15,000 pages of documentation, the collections where most of them come from are the Department of National Defense, the RCMP, Department of Transport, and then the National Research Council. And so that's where most of the stuff came from. Um, And there's also a small collection at the University of Ottawa archives that I consulted. Uh, And I would say that the vast majority of these pages of documentation are citing reports. Um, So somebody has seen something in the sky and they've reported it to the RCMP or they sent a letter directly to the Department of National Defense or whatever agency or department they thought was most appropriate and it's just made its way into the archive over the years. Mm. And at least by my count, between 1950 and 1995, um, which is kind of the start and the end date of the investigation, there were about 4,500 unique sightings throughout the country, um, and so I think that averaged out to maybe like one a week or so. And that could be one in BC one week and one in Nova Scotia the next week. It was kind of all over the place.
0: Amazing. There were about
2: 4,500 unique sightings, um, which generated you know multiple pages of documentation each. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then beyond sighting reports, there was correspondence between uh, ministers and departments just about what this whole thing was and what to do about it. There were lots of letters that citizens had sent in to the government, either sending in reports of settings or just letters of inquiry, wondering what did the government know about this? What could the government tell citizens about this? And then there were letters also from a bit later on, starting in the 60s, mostly uh, letters from groups Investigating UFOs and the paranormal, who are kind of asking the same questions or trying to contribute to the to the study. So it's a bit of a variety of stuff.
0: Wow. So yeah, a good cross section, I guess, of kind of the UFO culture almost. Uh, now, now, these the reports that you were you were finding, like these sighting reports, was was it like um, letters people were writing, or was it like notations of like phone calls that came in? Like, what form did the do the reports mm-hmm. take when you when you look at them?
2: Yeah, yeah. What, what do they actually look like? Uh, it's a bit of a mix. So I think the, probably the most common or at least the most comprehensive kind of report, the most detailed, the most easy to understand were RCMP reports. The RCMP was really, really good at documentation, um, especially beginning in the mid-60s. They really kind of got the, their act together and, and wrote very detailed reports. And the funny thing is, is that the the... The format of those reports followed the same format that they would fill out if they received a complaint from somebody. So I think normally, you know, they get a complaint about somebody's property or like criminal activity or something like that. It followed basically the same format. So it's kind of like a complaint of a UFO or a complaint of a, of a sighting, which I think kind of like tinged the way that they thought about these things. But I think the the most common form were, were these RCMP reports. It would give details about the place of the sighting and the time, uh, the weather conditions, the the investigator's assessment of the observer. Um, They're were, they were usually quite explicit about whether or not they thought the person was intoxicated uh, or if they had any special training in kind of astronomical work. And, and so there was a big question about reliability. And that's usually how the report ended was whether they believe this person was reliable or not. Um, and then beyond that, if it wasn't an RCMP report, it could be a variety of different forms. Some some reports were uh, written by personnel in the Department of National Defense, so it would be similar formats, but usually not as detailed. Um, there were a lot of telex messages between agencies, so kind of like teletype. Um, really basic, like electronic submissions back and forth. And that would usually just be bare bones listing uh, relevant details of the sighting and not going into too much narrative about it. Um, The National Research Council was really big about fireball or meteorite reporting cards, which were even more basic. It was just date and time. And then, you know, like one line notes about what it was. Hmm. Um, And they usually concluded that it was the The person had a mistake in a meteorite, or the planet Venus, or something like that for UFOs. Interesting. Uh, and then beyond, I, I'd say the last thing would be in the, in the really early nineteen f- fifties. A couple of agencies tried to create an actual questionnaire uh, of several pages long, trying to get at some of this detail. And that questionnaire didn't really have much currency. There's only a small handful of them that actually. Were filled out in full and then I guess included in the archive as well. But there was an attempt to make some kind of comprehensive questionnaire. So again, same as just the documents more generally, the reports themselves is this variety of stuff. There really was there was no central communication about how to report these things, how to fill forms out. It was just everybody kind of figuring out as they're
0: going along. Yeah. And I guess where it's all these different kind of divisions of the government between the police and Transport Canada and all this, it, it would make sense that the consistency wouldn't be there. It, aside from the reports of uh, of civilians or citizens reporting sightings, were you finding much information about actual research into the sightings beyond, like, as you described, you um, questioning kind of like the credibility to the witness. Did you find things that, that led you to believe that there was active investigation going on regarding these settings?
2: Not really, is the short answer. <laughs> um, I think it's, there was much more assumptions than actual investigation. So i say there were a very, very small handful of, I think, kind of bona fide attempts to investigate specific sightings. Um, from from the federal government. I mean, there were civilian investigators who took it very seriously. There were a couple of people in the government early on who really did try to do this properly. But for the most part, I would say uh, the documents speak really strongly to the fact that the government did not care about this subject and they really wanted to ignore it. They thought it was an embarrassment. Um, they thought it was just bad publicity. Uh, they just kind of wanted it to go away. And I think this is based on uh, a very conventional scientific understanding of the natural world that that these things are not actually real they're just misidentifications of other natural phenomena and that kind of assumption i think um underlay a lot of the way the ways in which the government approached the subject and, and you even see that in the actual the several investigations they actually they actually carried out there's in the reports written afterwards by the scientists that went up to the site for instance it's very clear that they are really, really skeptical about this. Um, and you know, skepticism is a good quality to have with this, but it was, it, in many cases, it seemed pretty extreme. So I'd say overall, the documents paint a, a pretty unsympathetic portrait of the subject generally and, and just show that the government was trying to get out of this, this topic altogether as, as quickly as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a few cases in Canada that are known as, you know, like the big UFO cases, like Falcon Lake. And here in Nova Scotia, we have the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Yep. If you didn't know about the current perception of those cases and had just gone through the reports you did, would they stand out in any way? Or, or just, I'm just wondering if for some reason, did they just kind of take on a life of their own? Or would they have been cases that would have been taken seriously, even through the yeah. reports?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both. So I think that's a really interesting uh, part of the investigation. And, and I actually have uh, an entire chapter on cases from the year 1967, because for whatever reason, you know, Shag Harbor, the Falcon Lake incident, there's another one in Alberta with crop circles. They all happened in 1967. And it's a bit unclear why, given that they're the biggest cases. Um, but the thing that surprised me about that, because I, I knew about these cases going into it, and I knew about their reputations now, and how well-known they are relative to everything else, in the documents, there's almost nothing about them. Almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Shag Harbor incident, there's maybe 25 pages that address that incident. There, the, mo- the Easily the most well-documented case is the Falcon Lake one. I think there's a couple hundred pages of stuff about it. But given that the archive is you know, 15,000 pages, it's not a lot. And so I was kind of struck by how little attention the government paid to them, especially given that you know the scientists involved in this the common refrain is that you know, well there's no physical evidence of any of these things, and as scientists we need physical evidence we need to be able to measure things and these cases had physical evidence, but it still didn't convince anybody um, and I think there's there's much more complex reasons for why it it didn't convince, but the thing I was struck immediately immediately by was that um, despite the reputation of these things now, the government just didn't really care that much. That being said, they did do investigations into them. Um, the Shake Harbour one, you know, it, there were several RCMP officers who witnessed it as well, so it, it immediately had more credibility in the government's eyes. So they did send a dive team to check it out. The Falcon Lake one, they sent a team out uh, and did radiation readings and took soil samples. There was this incident in 1967 as well, um, in Alberta near Camrose, um, which is a, a small little village where a farmer just found a bunch of crop circles on his, uh, in his fields one day. And the same thing, the government sent out a scientist to take radiation readings and take soil samples. And so they did do investigations in rare cases like that when there was physical evidence present or seemed to be. But the the final reports always concluded that there just wasn't enough evidence in the end and that the evidence that there was just wasn't convincing in any way. And you just kind of hit this brick wall of, well, now what? You know, you've done these tests, but they've come back inconclusive and there's just nothing else you can do. So you have to move on. Um, and I think that's what uh, citizens got most upset about is you just can't really do much more with it. Um, so there, w- there was a little bit of investigation, but overall, I mean, it was kind of shocking how, how little the government paid attention to it. And uh, in some ways, they even use it as an excuse to sh- start shutting down the investigation, or at least the Department of National Defense uh, took those three cases specifically as proof that, you know, we've been doing this work and investigating this thing for years, and nothing really has come out of it in their eyes. There's just really no results to show, and so it it was used as justification to kind of get out of the game altogether
0: interesting now I'm sure this has come up in in your research, but there there were at at a time like an a, official government projects dedicated to you know um researching and trying to understand the the UFO mystery like I think project magnet is a is a well known mm-hmm. one D- did you get much into the work of of Wilbert Smith in if not, did you see many references to to his work?
2: Yeah, I got into uh, Smith's work a lot. Actually, I have a whole chapter on him, uh, and he makes his way into a couple of other chapters. It's, it's kind of it's unavoidable. I think if you're looking at the history of Canada's involvement in this, I mean, the starting point is basically Wilbert Smith.
0: Yeah, why don't you tell us a, a bit about Wilbert Smith? Just give for people listening who don't know his work, maybe mm-hmm. give us the crash course in it, and then go on to describe you know what you found.
2: Yeah. Uh, And this is, Wilbert Smith is really the reason that my dissertation starts at 1950, uh, because um, that's when Project Magnet started. And so Wilbert Smith was this uh, engineer, radio engineer, working in the Department of Transport in Ottawa. Um, And he, by the time the UFO craze kind of started in the late 40s, he was already a a really well-respected senior engineer. Um, He just really knew his stuff. He was very technically adept, and I think the Department of Transport really recognized his skills, and he was eventually promoted several times and kind of became a superintendent down the line. And so he he was this guy who, who knew his stuff and then just became fascinated in the UFO question, I think, in the same way that many other people did. He just read about it in the papers. And being an engineer, I think he just started to think about, you know, if these crafts are real, if these flying saucers are actually real, how, how are they real? How would they actually operate? And that kind of led him down this road of uh, trying out small little experiments into how like magnetic fields operate, thinking that perhaps these things are using gravity and magnets to power themselves. And it formalized in 1950 with the, form, with the formation of Project Magnets, which was, for the most part, a one-man show. It was pretty much just Wilbert Smith working on these questions with a tiny bit of funding, um, just the use of kind of spare equipment lying around. And there were other people that kind of came in, came out of the projects on a part-time or casual basis. But Smith ran this thing for four years. It was eventually terminated in 1954. And it was really, uh, I I say in in my work, it it was really the first official project that the Canadian government undertook, even though it was just Wilbert Smith doing it. Um, And in later documents, the Canadian government tries to distance itself from Smith's work uh, for several reasons. The official reason for the termination is that it brought a lot of bad publicity and that Smith was doing work just well outside of the scope of what the Department of Transport actually did. But it, it seems obvious from a lot of the documents that it's mostly because Smith kind of became a true believer in the sense that uh, he was doing these these various experiments. He did a balloon experiment where he threw a balloon up into the air um, at night to try to test the observational um, abilities of just everyday citizens. Um, he, he did a, a few little things like this set up a UFO observatory in a shack just outside of Ottawa, measuring disturbances in the atmosphere in case it was a uFO and then through these kinds of things, he became convinced that extraterrestrials were real that they were kind of orbiting the planet and communicating with humans if the humans were receptive enough to it. He started uh, associating with mediums, people channeling extraterrestrial intelligences, holding meetings um, in his basement, in his home in the suburbs, which became uh, one of Canada's first uh, flying saucer clubs. Um, And so he did all these things and just became quite convinced that this was real um, before his death. And so the, the Canadian government was not a fan of this by the end, uh, because Wilbert Smith was still pretty openly uh, talking about his work as officially sanctioned by the Canadian government. And so they shut it down in 54. He continued to do this work on his own spare time, and then he eventually died in the, in the early 60s. And he really kind of stands out. if, if And I think in the history of Ufology generally, and then uh, like I said, if if you're looking at the Canadian history, you, you can't even begin it without considering Wilbert Smith because he was so central to everything happening in the first few years.
0: Wasn't like Magnet run by Wilbert Smith, and then when that got taken apart, he wasn't he in charge of Second Story as well? Wasn't it almost like a rebranding of it, or, or am I wrong?
2: Not exactly. Um, so Project Magnet, Magnet ran from 1950 to 1954, and it was it was really just Smith. That ran that. However, simultaneously there was Project Second Story. And so Second Story ran from nineteen fifty-two to fifty-four. So it only ran for two years. Magnet ran for four. And whereas Project Magnet was Wilbur Smith under the Department of Transport, Project Second Story was under the Defense Research Board. And so the Defense Research Board was an agency that the Canadian government founded after the Second World War um, solely to do military science. It was all about finding better ways to to wage war, basically. Um, And so the scientist that was head of the DRB, the Defense Research Board, at this time was Oman Solant. And he's kind of a name that crops up once in a while if you get deep enough into the UFO stuff. Uh, And he struck this committee. Um, And I think, like I said earlier, or I said at some point, that one of the motivations for this was maybe this was the fear of advanced Soviet technology, Um, I think he did take that seriously for a time, but he also really, really quickly got out of this altogether and and distanced himself. So he did that by appointing another person to head Project Second Story. And this guy was Peter Millman, and he was an astronomer with the National Research Council and and fairly well-respected meteorologist. Um, And so Millman was the head of Project Second Story the, the the committee only met about half a dozen times over the two-year period. And if you read through the minutes, it's really, really anticlimactic. Um, they It's basically what you would expect. They spent most of the time trying to develop a questionnaire, uh, a systematic kind of comprehensive one that people could use, which was never taken up by any other departments, really. It just kind of got lost in the ether. And then they basically concluded that UFOs were... Um, same thing, not real. They were, you know, uh, delusions or they were uh, misidentified natural phenomena. Uh, in the end, that UFOs basically were not amenable to scientific inquiry was the words that they used. That science could not study this phenomenon because it was not of the natural world, uh, whether it was religious phenomena or or whatever else. They just weren't interested in it. And so my reading of it is that Project Second Story was set up almost as a counterpoint to Project Magnet because Smith was very vocal about his work. Uh, It got written up in newspapers. You know, Donald Kehoe was a really popular author at the time, wrote a whole bunch of books on UFOs that sold really well in the States. And he wrote explicitly about Smith's work. And so the Canadian government was partly afraid about, afraid of the publicity. And so they... Project Second Story to the government was the official project that debunked the subject and, and just gave them the justification to move on. Um, and so it only lasted a couple of years. And the, the I mean, the ironic thing also about that is that Smith was on Project Second Story as well. Oh, wow. and so I think that's why they get conflated is that Smith ran Magnet, but he was basically the expert on UFOs by that point in the Canadian government because he was the only person working on it. And so he was on the committee anyway. But you see in the minutes the conflict that, especially Millman and Smith, there was a bit of a, not necessarily a rivalry, but they were, they were they clearly had very different opinions about the subject.
1: Although as Minister of National Defense, uh, I had sighting reports of UFOs. I was too busy to be concerned about them at the time because I was trying to unify the Army, Navy and Air Force into a single Canadian Defence Force. So um, this was not high on my agenda. But it, about ten years ago, I started getting interested due to a young man from Ottawa sending me material on the subject. It took me a while to get around to reading it, but I took it for my summer reading in 2005 and was really impressed with what was contained in it. And what I thought to myself is there are huge issues here, and people of the world have a right to know. I accepted the invitation to speak to a symposium at the University of Toronto, and uh, I said UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. That gave me the dubious distinction of being the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries uh, to say so unequivocally.
0: Now, you're, the, the work that you're doing, what would you say is, is at this point, your, your main goal? Like it, in the end, what question are you hoping to answer with your research?
2: Well, I mean, I, now that I'm, I'm almost finished, um, and so I, I'm pretty confident that I kind of answered my original questions, which were pretty, pretty broad, I think, at the beginning. It was, it was really motivated by this question of, why did the government do this at all? It was kind of baffling to me. It, it, for some reason, it makes more sense to think that the American government would do this and maybe the British government, but it just seemed odd that the Canadian government would get involved in this topic at all. And so it was really the question of, you know, why Canada? Why did they do this? And so I've drawn much broader conclusions about this. I've, I've written this history of the UFO investigation and, you know, all the way through it's about People trying to figure out what UFOs are, but in many ways it has almost has nothing to do with UFOs because the, the broader conclusions I'm drawing are about the relationship between the government or the state and Canadian citizens during this period. I see UFOs as as kind of one example among others of how the state wanted Canadian citizens to behave, how they wanted them to kind of acquiesce to the government's authority and expertise. Um, I think this is often about kind of trust between the government and citizens, whether the citizens can trust the government's intentions or that they have citizens' best intentions at heart, um, or if the government is maybe hiding things, which is what many citizens thought was the case. And especially as you get into the 60s, And after things like um, JFK's assassination, and then even Watergate later on, there's all these kind of events happening uh, in in broader spheres that sow distrust in citizens about the government and, and what kind of civil servants are doing behind these closed doors. And the UFO thing just fits in with all that. And so I think it kind of dovetails with much broader concerns about what is what is the relationship, what is the relationship, and what should the relationship be between the government and and citizens, and why do, for instance, Canadian scientists during the 50s and 60s get so frustrated that Canadian citizens just don't seem to get it, in their words, that clearly UFOs are not real, they're just misidentifications, or people are delusional, why aren't they getting with the program and just being more scientifically minded?
0: And throughout your your research and reading these 15,000-plus documents, did, did you ever find information that led you to think that the government had some concern for the safety of its people, be it due to, you know, like a meteorite falling to the earth or foreign spies coming or something? Like, was there ever anything you came across that they seemed to really take serious?
2: I think that the Canadian government at the very beginning, in the late 40s and early 50s, did take seriously the idea that potentially UFOs were advanced Soviet technology and that this could be uh, Soviet spies coming over or this, this could be a, a threat to national security. So I think that is um, confident in saying that that is one of the initial reasons why they, they did take this seriously, if only for a very brief time. But almost as quickly, they decided that that just wasn't the case, and it's a bit unclear why they came to that conclusion, because they didn't really do any serious study into, you know, whether the Soviets could have this technology. I think they just assumed that it was just so advanced and so unbelievable that it just couldn't be real, and then they decide perhaps this is of scientific interest. So let's it come it it comes up, you know, at first in meetings of military personnel and then they quickly kind of punt it over to the scientists and say, you know, take a look at this and see what you make of it. Let us know if anything comes of it. And the scientists are even less eager to look at this at all. Um, And they they don't really care as much about national security concerns. They're just concerned about carrying on with their scientific work. So at the very beginning, there's a bit of a sense that the government is taking this seriously as national security stuff, but it very quickly disappears but the interesting thing for me is that that doesn't mean that citizens share the same views and you see letters in the 50s and the 60s and beyond from people who are who seem to be genuinely concerned that this might be a threat in, in some way and they are perplexed and outraged many times when they send a letter to the government saying that they've seen something and saying you know I, I just wanted you to know this in case this is of concern and the government comes back and and sometimes mocks them quite openly or or very or kind of passively. It, it's clear in some letters that the government doesn't have much patience for this. And I think citizens are surprised by that. and there's this it just becomes this big source of conflict between the government and and just people kind of on the ground who, Have sincere concerns about what this is. Mm
0: -hmm. That being said, I'm sure you saw a lot of interesting letters and interesting reports. What are some of, like, of everything you've gone through, what are some of the stranger, uh, more bizarre documents you've come across?
2: Right. Um, There was a series of letters sent, uh, I think it was in the 60s or the 70s, with uh, really bizarre drawings on them uh, of what seemed to be alien beings. And the person was going on and on about how they'd seen all of these things, uh, all these kind of like manifestations of, I don't know, maybe extraterrestrials or beings from another dimension or whatever. And it goes on for pages and pages. And it all seems very sincere. And then at the bottom, you see a couple of lines saying something like, you know, an asterisk. All of this was seen under the influence of hash and alcohol, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so you get a few instances of stuff like that, right? And you can see why, you know, if a government official received that, they probably wouldn't take it that seriously. And it, and it really colors how they see the rest of the documents as well. Um, that you kind of get like one or two letters like that, and they, they tend to dismiss the whole lot. And I mean, there are other ones. There, there was um, a letter from the early 90s, just before the investigation finally finished, Uh, or before it was closed down, from a mother who was really concerned because she thought that her son had been abducted by aliens, Um, her really young son, I think two or three years old, uh, and who who was still there but just had been abducted in the night and experimented on and then returned. And again, the government didn't really take it seriously. The woman said that her son had told her that these aliens had kind of operated on him in the, the kind of the classic fashion and left marks. But when they did an examination at the doctors, there were no marks at all. And so there was no physical evidence to take it seriously, at least in the government's mind. Um, and then it, probably the other one that stands out was, and I was I was really pleased to see this in a funny way, that there was a letter from a Trent University professor <laughs> from the math department from the, in the 80s. And the name was redacted. I don't know who it was. Um, and they, and it, this wasn't an unusual claim. There's a, a few other letters like this, but they claimed to discover new laws of physics that Einstein had gotten it wrong. That you know the speed of light was variable and not fixed, which would allow for interstellar travel. And basically, trying to lay out proofs for how and why uh, aliens might actually be here. And this professor just thought sending this letter to the Department of National Defense was the most logical thing for this, and I assume it was just dismissed outright and just kind of filed away like everything else. So there's a bit of a variety of stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, now given how much time you spent on this, after you present your thesis, what do you plan to do with all this knowledge? Like, you can't just shut off your, you know, your years of UFO research. What are you going to do with this?
2: Yeah, I can never forget this stuff now. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I have a few months left in my program before I defend the dissertation, and then the plan in the short term, anyway, is that I will revise this and publish it as a book because I just I kind of want I want people to uh, have access to this research. You know, I've been working on it for years, and it'd be great if people can read it and, and enjoy it in whatever way. Uh, and then I'm I'm not totally sure where to go from here, just because I've done this project, I've looked at UFOs in, in kind of as broad and comprehensive a way as I can. So I've tried to look at the entire investigation as a whole. And so I think maybe what I'll do is try to delve into some more specific aspects of it. Um, I've had in mind for a while to write a biography of Wilbur Smith, just because there's so much material there, and he's such an interesting guy. Uh, and there's been a bit of work on him, but nothing that comprehensive. Uh, and then I, I see it kind of going in other related directions i'm kind of waiting to hear about um funding for a project that i want to do on so-called crank letters and this is something that i found through the ufr research um that multiple government departments and agencies over the years all the way back to the time of sir john and mcdonald had kept correspondence from what they called cranks and and the government still uses that term to this day apparently to, to categorize certain kinds of letters. You know, For lack of a better term, they're, they're just kind of the wackier letters okay. that the government receives. And, and there's a whole bunch of them in the UFO stuff as well, like some of the ones I just described. The letter from the Trent University professor would probably be considered a crank letter in the sense that I think a government official receiving it and reading it doesn't really know what to make of it. It seems oftentimes to be rambling um, that's unrelated to the work that they do in that office. It, they're often sent to kind of odd places and go on these tangents that have nothing to do. And I think like the department of energy received a whole bunch and a lot of these letters have nothing to do with energy's concern. It, it's just, I, I just find it such an interesting thing and it relates to the UFO work generally is that people get dismissed as cranks all the time as, you know, uh, uh, uneducated or just kind of rambling about nonsense things. But I think there's more to that. It's It's all about how we, you know, make those definitions and categorize people. There's something else going on there. I think that's of interest.
0: So. I would be um, a terrible interviewer if I didn't end this by asking: Given everything you know about this and everything you read, what do you think is going on up there in the sky? Do you have you, do, you, do you have an opinion on this? And if so, are you comfortable sharing it?
2: Yeah, I, I'm. I I'm, love. To, yeah, I can talk about that for sure. And that's the question I always get: Is <laughs> you know, do you believe? And I. I really don't know. I'm I'm pretty agnostic at this point, I think. One thing is, I guess, the more I read into this, the less convinced I am by, for instance, the Roswell narrative, um, The kind of the major things like that. I'm, I'm really not convinced by those things. Um, but I'm as convinced as ever that there are most definitely things kind of going on out there that we don't know about, and we don't necessarily have the tools to find out about as well. I think that's probably one of the major roadblocks is that in many ways, scientific thinking can be very narrow-minded, and if you don't have the proper uh, you know, framework or tool, physical tools or otherwise to work with, you're not going to see these things happening. Um, and, I mean, I, it's, it's just kind of speculation at that point. One uh, author I really respect on the subject is um, uh, Jeffrey Kripal, who's a professor of religious studies, actually, at uh, Rice University in the States. And he, I think, has kind of one of the best perspectives on this, that in his mind, at least, the UFO thing is really at base of religious phenomena, that people have been seeing things like this for thousands of years and attributed it to gods and that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, UFOs, I, I am pretty convinced, um, give us, a, if, if you read them in a particular way, it tells us more about kind of our... Fears and anxieties during the early Cold War about technology and about foreign invasion, that kind of thing. You can read UFOs in that way and I think that's, that's probably the most compelling thing to think about.
0: much like all other pieces of the UFO subculture, the Canadian government's involvement in the phenomenon is also nuanced and a bit complicated. I found it interesting that so much of their interests seem to begin with correspondence and other encouragement from Canadians who are interested in this topic. There are certainly passionate believers out there, and if you're one of them, I salute you. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. A huge thanks to Matthew Hayes of Trent University for taking the time to share his amazing work with us. Matthew, if and when you release your book, I'll be among the first to buy a copy, and I'd love to have you back on the show then to talk about it. I'd also like to thank anyone who's listening. Without you, I'd have no excuse to spend all my free time looking into this show's topics. To pass the time, without you, I guess I'd have to watch TV. If you want more Nighttime, please check out the Patreon group. It's a dollar a month, it allows you to support the show, as well as gain access to the supporter exclusive feed, which provides ad-free, early releases of episodes, in addition to prior episodes no longer available on this free feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com nighttimepodcast. I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show, and welcome the newest members of the group. James in Laval, Quebec, Carol and Jennifer P., I sincerely appreciate the support you showed Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show, but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities, both on and off the show, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to provide feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com, or you can always send me a voice message from the contact section of my website, nighttimepodcast.com. Now, until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird.
1: The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.